Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Elisa Quint. Elisa is a senior scholar at YIVO Institute and a contributor to the Digital Yiddish Theater Project. She's the author of the recently published The Rise of Modern Yiddish Theater. She's also at work on a collection of documents and plays for a forthcoming book she is co-editing, Women on the Yiddish Stage. Welcome, Elisa. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. I wondered, um, to start off, if you can kind of unpack the title of the book a bit um, by sharing a little bit about what defines the early years of modern Yiddish theater, sort of the when and how of it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So most of what we knew about the Yiddish theater really centered on the figure of Avram Goldfaden, who was um, a Russian Jewish intellectual. He came from um, a pretty modest beginnings. He was the son of a clockmaker, um, born in 1840 in old Constantine, now in Ukraine. And his parents, who were pious, nonetheless enrolled him in a school, a gymnasium, um, that uh, allowed him to avoid the possibility of conscription to the Russian army. And there he learned Russian and became an excellent student and eventually went to this very exclusive Russian Jewish seminary and then began composing songs in Yiddish and eventually started mounting productions of Yiddish operettas. Um, And this happens, he's composing in the 1860s, and by 1877, he's mounting these rather small-scale productions at the beginning. And and so most of the narratives of the Yiddish theater really centers on Goldfaden, and and this and Goldfaden himself took almost all of the credit for um, establishing the Yiddish theater, and and basically said that most of the other participants were directed by him and were actors who came from traditional forms of Jewish performance. They were wedding jesters, or they came from um, synagogues, choristers, and it was all, all him who managed to somehow um, coax them onto a more modern stage and a more modern form of performance. And you mentioned his family and his upbringing, and would that have been a challenge for his family that he pursued this? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I think incrementally, he and many of the people in his generation really get closer and closer to uh, more secular forms. And, um, and they might have had a problem with it, but in Goldfaden's case, there is no record. There's no evidence that parents did have a problem with it, and there was no tension between him and his parents like there might have been, and there, there certainly was between peers of his and their parents. So this wasn't some sort of revolutionary act on Goldfaden's part. But what I did forget to do is to kind of follow up on your question about the rise, about the title of my book, because the title of my book is really an attempt to move the narrative away from Goldfaden and to open up the story and include many of the people who participated in the theater almost as much as he did, if not just as much, as composers and impresarios, and to also point out the many credentialed participants of the theater, people who were Europeanized and who were educated and sophisticated just as Goldfaden was, and who Goldfaden really cut out of the story, 
um, but who were vital to its establishment. That was one of the questions I had for you is, I mean, you, I think it's fair to say, and you can correct me, please, that he was complicated. His childhood, his education, he straddled sort of two worlds. And I would imagine that informed his work, but how emblematic then is he of other sort of Jewish cultural producers who sought to create modern work? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way I tell Goldfaden's story um, is that he gets complicated much later in his life only, and that's kind of why his story is so skewed, um, because he falls out with a lot of his peers and um, he's he's disgruntled and resentful towards the end of his life. And so his memoirs become very, are very, very unreliable. And, and I try to analyze that at the beginning of the book to say, this is not where we should be getting all of our information the way, um, and we should not be relying on these memoirs the way previous historians relied upon them. But in terms of comparing him with his peers during these, um, the 1870s and the 1880s, Goldfaden stands out in a very specific way. The Yiddish theater really gathers its momentum when it moves from Yassi, where it incubates for two years, let's say from 1876 to 1877, and then it moves to Odessa, and it moves there and, and starts off, and then the Russian authorities say, well, we don't, really, we don't really allow public performance in the Yiddish language, and he's closed down. But then Goldfaden goes to St. Petersburg and somehow negotiates permission for public Yiddish performance in the empire. And this permission, this window, really only lasts until 1883. What's interesting, it's a very small window, but what's interesting is it covers a watershed moment in Jewish history, and so students of Jewish history really know, especially 1881 and 1882, they, they know this time for the waves of pogroms, and the changes that these pogroms make, uh, let's say, or cause in, uh, among a lot of the peers that Goldfaden studied with and, and hung out with, let's say. Um, there's great shifts in ideology, and Jewish intellectuals like Goldfaden are turning towards Zionism and towards socialism and really working out questions of ideology. And when I looked at other, the sources that really really document the Yiddish theater, the pogroms really don't register, and neither do any of these ideological struggles register. And so um, I, I was wondering, how do I work this out? How do I make this part of the narrative of Russian Jewish history when they're really not struggling with the questions that mark this moment in Russian Jewish history? But it had to be acknowledged that there was this kind of gap and, and so I felt like there has to be a different type of cultural history that the Yiddish theater tells. And I think it shows, it reflects this part of the Russian Jewish experience where social, uh, a kind of awakening happens that has more to do with how Jews relate to one another, how they relate to Gentiles um, when they go to the theater, how they change, how they modernize their habits of social conduct and self-grooming and how they um, engaged with tools of self-promotion and entrepreneurship and really 
again, outside the category of ideology. I found that fascinating. To put it in that kind of a context really changes one's understanding of theater and the role it played, and, and, and maybe what some of his work was all about. And, it, and then I was also sort of springboarding from there, really intrigued or um, surprised to read Sholem Aleichem's reaction to Goldfaden. <laughs> and um, if I can share a quote and then ask you, this is from your book, and then ask you to maybe elaborate on this, because I found it really interesting. So um, you write, Sholem Aleichem considered him as a forger of a new language that, quote, breathed the European spirit into our old jargon, quote. Um, he said that about Goldfaden. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, I know where you're quoting from, and um, and I and I use it as an example of 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 the kind of passive aggression mm-hmm. uh, or passive aggressiveness that um, that is evidenced in in the way that a lot of these writers um, related to one another. And the reason why this compliment is more complicated than it seems on the surface is because. Shalom Aleichem is only commenting on Goldfaden's poetry, and this is in the 1890s or maybe even 1889, I think he writes this, because this is in Shalom Aleichem's legendary Folks Bibliotheque um, thick journal that he publishes um, in 1889, and he's trying to size up what Yiddish culture is, and he knows he has to pay dues to Goldfaden because Goldfaden is really perhaps the biggest celebrity, Yiddish-related celebrity in the Russian Empire at this point, but he does not want to acknowledge his theater, and so he only speaks to Goldfaden's poetry. He does not speak to um, the 14 um, operettas that he wrote and that he successfully mounted um, on stages throughout the empire. He just um, discusses his poetry, and that's where a lot of the peers, a lot of his peers, parrots and others, would acknowledge Goldfaden with compliment, but felt very uncomfortable with some of his operettas that they thought were embarrassing, especially the the comic operettas. And do you think that that was a tension between writers and playwrights or performers, if I can use that word, Mm -hmm. that occurred because it sort of was um, in a nascent stage of cultural production for both the literature and performance? So I think there's there's cattiness and jealousy in every um, literary mm-hmm. and theatrical culture in any language. I think Shalom Aleichem was a bit of a control freak. He really wanted to see a very specific type of culture, Yiddish language culture, grow. And Goldfaden was um, was going rogue, was was going awry. He his operettas were, and it's funny, actually, because his operettas, in their worst iterations, the ones that were uh, most embarrassing to his peers, were anti-Hasidic, and that actually ideologically sat fine with his peers, who were also anti-Hasidic. But the fact that they were mounted in front of many non-Jews was the insurmountable obstacle for them. So it's one thing to depict Hasids as crazy, superstitious, 
silly um, and revolting even in books, and books that would only circulate in the Yiddish language among Jews. It would be another thing to really publicly put these types of images on public stages. And when non-Jews laughed at them, some Jewish audience members, especially, let's say, enlightened or educated ones, felt very embarrassed by this. And was his work, uh, he had an audience that went beyond just a Jewish audience, which you've established, yes? Yes. Okay. And were the plays um, and the operas, all of his work, was it well-received immediately, or do you think we're coming back and sort of appreciating him in a new way? Mm. Or a little bit of both, perhaps? Right. It is a little bit of both, because his... um his work is rather uneven. Some of there's some plays that I think are fantastic, um, are fascinating, and some of them very farcical, a lot of slapstick. And then there's a whole musical component which I focus far less on, and that I don't really evaluate. I think for for people coming to this coming to the theaters who saw Goldfaden, who did not know Yiddish, and there was a substantial contingent of each audience. I don't know the numbers in particular, but based on um, mostly Russian language coverage of the theater from then, I could surmise that there were always substantial non-Jewish people there, and there were also Jewish people who really, who spoke Russian. I mean, all of this was city-bound, and uh, even Jews stopped speaking Yiddish and were speaking Russian and other languages, but they attended the Yiddish theater too. And, and also, it's part of a context where theater goers were used to consuming theater and operettas in different languages. So, to give you a sense of the reviews, sometimes the reviews were very negative and, um, and disparaging and dismissive. Sometimes, they were just observational, and they observed how much these shows sold out. And we know, even today, there's always a gap between the art and the commercial success, um, the artistic and the commercial success of a show, and that was true for Goldfaden. His shows really sold out and really did very well commercially. Um, and the artistic side of them wasn't always the priority. And I guess I want to ask you the, the broader question, which was, what drew you to Yiddish theater? Hmm. What drew me to Yiddish theater? Well, I'll tell you what drew me to already having um, studied Yiddish theater alongside many other things when I went to graduate school, many other um, Yiddish authors. Obviously, Goldfaden doesn't stand out as the best of them. But what I liked about this topic from the beginning was how much it seemed to need unpacking historically. And I was um, interested in writing a meaty cultural history. So for me, the draw was there was a lot of inconsistencies and incompleteness to the story of Goldfaden and, and the theater. And I really loved trying to put all those puzzle pieces together and um, that's what really drives my stories. A lot of work was done by previous historians during the interwar period, um, but that said, they really never built a story that had great coherence. 
and that's what I enjoyed most about writing this book. And it's apparent, and I, I thank you for writing it for somebody who wanted to, to begin to, you know, sort of discover and, and understand Yiddish theater. It, it's a really great read. Oh, um, thank you, Lisa. I'm glad you enjoyed I, it. I did. It's all about me. No. <laughs> no. Well, I encourage others to read, um, yeah. You're, um, you're a great test, and I'm, <laughs> I'm so appreciative, and also I'm glad you put it that way because I really did want to tell a story. And there are so many, and I, I was just drawn also to the, the many stories, the many memoirs written by Yiddish actors that, um, that we didn't get to talk about, mm-hmm. but so many of them tell alternative stories to Goldfaden, or at least stories that together um, really give a three-dimensional view of the theater and the theater's culture. And I think that that's so exciting um, in terms of the work that you have done and continue to do, from what I know of you, because you do get this sort of different perspectives, um, which all inform our understanding of what is exciting, complicated, and when you contextualize it in terms of Yiddish and modern Jewish culture, it's really in, so informative and entertaining to read also. Thank um, you so much. Last question for you would be, yes. I'm curious to know if, if you could see one performance of anything in Yiddish theater that has either been staged or you'd want to see it staged, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. But, you know, it changes by the day. Hmm. Um, I would love to see The Sorceress done, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to include an English translation of it in the volume. And I had to choose one of Goldfaden's for the volume, mm-hmm. um, if you're asking me of of any of the ones Anything. of any of any plays that have not yet been translated, which one would it be? Or no, or it, it could have been in the original in Yiddish. Um, if you could go back in time and be in the audience, is there one performance or one play that you would love to have been able to see? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it would be um, it would be the Sorceress in Yiddish, Dikishef Macharin because it was one of the most played operettas during this time, so crowds really, really loved it, Jewish and non-Jewish, because it gets really good reviews in the Russian-language press. And also, I think the reason why people so enjoyed it was because it gave, it gave a kind of um, epic quality to... Russian Jewish life. It takes place in Odessa, but then it, the action moves to Constantinople at the time, and you see a lot of different aspects of Russian Jewish life, and um, you see different classes. It would be such a treat, and I do. It, the, the nice thing, one of the, actually the biggest pleasures of working in the field of Yiddish theater, which has been really expanding over the past decade is the interaction I'm allowed with Yiddish actors. And I'm on it. I'm working on them to do a production of The Sorceress because I think it would be so exciting. Well, let us know when your powers of persuasion (laughs) bring it to the stage. That would be great. I will. Okay. So um, again, for our listeners, the title of the book is The Rise of the Modern Yiddish Theater, Indiana University Press. You can purchase a copy of the book at shop. 
yiddishbookcenter.org and elsewhere, I'm sure, on the World Wide Web. So thank you again for joining me. Look forward to your next book, uh, and be well. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. This is Jessica Parker, Museum Education Specialist at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. And while you're there, I recommend listening to episode 142 from April 4th, 2017, Lisa Newman's conversation with Sandy Fox, host of the feminist Yiddish podcast, Weibirteich. Until next time, be well, be healthy, sei gesund.